Matthew 19, and we pick up at verse 16, which is the account of Jesus and the rich young ruler, and your Bibles may say that, although I believe in this Matthew text, he's not mentioned as a ruler. He's, meant, he's called a ruler in the Luke passage. Uh, the story of the rich young ruler is mentioned in three of the Gospels, and uh, therefore it's a very familiar story to us. Uh, which in some ways makes uh, our reading it more difficult because we have all kinds of preconceived ideas of what the story is all about. We think we know it. And so what we need to do is we need to uh, get a fresh look at this story. That's what we're going to try to do. And first of all, what I want to do is put it in the context in which it appears in this book. And you'll notice that the story of the rich young ruler, beginning in verse 16, follows Jesus blessing the children in verses 13 through 15. And it's put in that order for a reason. So if you look at verses 13 and 14 where Jesus blesses the children, it says little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Because what? Uh, Jesus doesn't have time for kids. Uh, children are helpless. They're powerless. They have no status whatsoever. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to enter the kingdom, you must be like a little child and uh, be trusting be dependent, not self-sufficient. So then what we do, we come to verse 16. It says, now behold, take a look. It says, look. One came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And so here is the story of the rich young ruler. So what we have is in verses 13 through 16, children who have no status, and then onto the scene steps a man with ultimate status. When he, Luke calls him a ruler, that means he was likely a ruler in the synagogue. Okay, uh, Don't think of him as a political ruler, you know, having a governmental job. He's very wealthy. Okay, He is absolutely the opposite of a child when it comes to status and power. And he asked this question in verse 16, what must he do to have eternal life? Now, the first thing I want you to realize is that the phrase eternal life in verse 16 and the phrase kingdom of God in verse 14 basically mean the same thing. To enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven means that you have eternal life. So, kingdom of heaven in 14... Eternal life in verse 16. Look in verse 17. At the end of that. Enter into life. Notice that. Enter into life. Verse 17. Verse 23. Look at this. Enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see that? Then look at verse 24. Enter into the kingdom of God. You see that? They're all synonyms. And then look at the end of verse 25. Who can be saved. All those words mean the same. Kingdom of heaven, eternal life, enter life, enter the kingdom of heaven, enter the kingdom of God, and save all mean the exact same thing. 
So that's the first thing you need to realize. This man wants to enter into the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God like a little child. He wants to know, what do I have to do? You see that? So that's the context. Now the second thing I want you to know, notice, is that uh, this is a genuine question. One of the things that we do when we read the story of the rich young ruler is we impose motives upon this man as if he's not sincere. Uh, what gives us that right to do that? Take it at face value. The man has a question. Here are children, and Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of God. This is what it's like to have life. And this guy says, well, what do I have to do to have eternal life? How do I become like a little child? So let's call it a legitimate question. And then third thing I want you to notice, he senses uh, an inadequacy. He realizes he lacks something. What's he have to do? That's legitimate. Okay. Uh, now when he says, what do I have to do? What good thing do I have to do? Notice, what good thing do I have to do? Again, let's not make an assumption that this guy's talking about work salvation. We always want to make this guy think that he has to work for his salvation. That's not what that means. What must I do is a legitimate thing. I mean, that's what the... Uh, uh, on the day of Pentecost, the people cry out to Peter, What must we do to be saved? He says, Repent, believe. The rich, uh, the, uh, the Philippian jailer, remember that? The great earthquake, and he falls down. He says to Paul, What must I do to be saved? That's, that's not a works of salvation to say, What must I do? And so he asks this question, What must I do? Now let's not get trapped into thinking he's trying to work his way salvation. Now look at Jesus' response in verse 17. He said, why do you call me good? Some of your translations say, why do you ask me what's good? Whose translation says, why do you ask me what's good? Look, make sure there you see that. And others, the point is this. Uh, there's a lot goes on with this question here that we mess up. Uh, Jesus is saying, well, you know, why are you asking me what's good, or why do you call me good? Uh, ask God. He's the one that sets the standard for goodness. If you want to know what good thing you need to do to have eternal life, you need to go to God directly. He's the one that sets the standard. And so, what is that standard? <clears throat> Look what he says in verse 17. No one is good but God, uh, but if you want to enter, now watch, if you want to enter into life, here's what you need to do. Keep the commandments. Now let's assume that's an honest answer. You didn't playing with this guy. Is Jesus teaching a work salvation? If you keep the Ten Commandments, you're going to get saved? You think that? I don't think so. And this is not some test. These are all kinds of crazy ideas that we impose upon the text. Jesus says, here's what you need to do. You need to keep the commandments. Now, Jesus is not teaching a work salvation here. Keeping the law, and this is something that we, as evangelicals, living in the 20th and 21st century, have missed entirely. Because we do not understand our Old Testament, and we don't understand Old Testament theology. Keeping the law 
was the evidence, listen to me now, keeping the law was the evidence that a person was a Jew, a child of God. It was the identity marker. Listen again. Keeping the law identified you as a child of God. It was an identity marker. Uh, it showed that a person had entered into the covenant relationship with God. <clears throat> the other nations had entered into a relationship with God. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites. It showed the law was given to Israel to identify them as God's people. A good God gave them a good law. They entered into a covenant and they remained faithful to God by keeping the law. Salvation was based on the covenant. They put their faith in the one true and living God. And then, to give evidence that they were in a covenant with God, they kept the law. It wasn't that the law saved them. The law was evidence that they were the people of God. And that's why they kept the law. Does that make sense? So it wasn't a profession of faith plus the law. Okay? In fact, if you made a profession of faith, say, well, I have a covenant relationship with God, and you didn't keep the law, guess what? That was an empty profession of faith. You can't say I'm a child of God and not keep the Ten Commandments if you were a Jew. That would have been an empty profession of faith. So, you would have had life. If you didn't keep the law, you would have been outside the law. You would have been called an outlaw. You weren't a law keeper, therefore you were not in a covenant relationship with God. So, it's not faith plus works or faith plus the law. It's a faith that works. You have faith, and then guess what you do? You show your faith by keeping the law. That's what a Jew did. If they didn't keep the law, then they weren't part of the people of God. Does that make sense? So Jesus just saying, look, if you want to enter into life, show that you're a child of God, keep the commandments. See? Now this is followed by a question. The guy says, well, which one? It's an honest question. Tell me what I need to do. Look what Jesus said. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Five commandments. They extend from commandment five to commandment nine. Five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Not necessarily in that order, but those are the commandments. Five through nine, which speaks of a horizontal relationship with people around you. How are you to treat those around you? Okay. Then Jesus adds one more. Look what he says at the end of verse 19. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which comes right out of Leviticus 19, the exact same phrase. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now look how the man responds. What do you think he says to that? Look what he says in verse 20. The young man said to him, All these things I've kept, from my youth. He's not boasting. He's just saying, that's what I've done. See? I've done that. 
This is a pious Jew. He's somebody that has a covenant relationship with God as, as he understands it. And yet, guess what? Something seems to be lacking, or he wouldn't have come to Jesus. He says, well, I've done that. <clears throat> At least that's what he thinks. Okay. Look what he says at the end of verse 20. What do I still lack? He knows there's something wrong. He knows there's something missing in his life. So what do I need to do? Now look what Jesus says in 21. He said to him, well, if you want to be perfect, and don't think of perfect the way you think of perfect. If there's something lacking, if you want to make up that lack, so you're in that full covenant relationship with God, here's what you're to do. Go sell what you have and give it to the poor. That's what you need to do. Go sell what you have and give it to the poor. Now, if you've been with us in this study all along, you know that that <coughs> sounds somewhat familiar. He's talked about almsgiving before, and he's talked about what it means to be perfect before. So I want you to mark this spot and go back to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to go to two spots. So in a moment, I want you to keep your finger also in that area. But Matthew chapter 5. And look at verse 48. Matthew 5, 48. And here's what it says. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You, There's that word perfect. You are to be perfect just as God is perfect, in the same way that God is perfect. You need to be perfect in the same way that God is perfect. Now, if you want to know what all that means, you have to follow up, read that whole fifth chapter. That's the, the Sermon on the Mount chapter. But, uh, I will just show you a couple verses. Look at verse 20 in chapter 5. For I say unto you, unless your righteousness, look at this, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means what? <clears throat> okay, now the Pharisees, they tried to keep the law. They didn't go out and Sometimes they did kill people. But. The Pharisees were law keepers. But what does Jesus say? Your righteousness has to what? Exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are lacking something. They keep the law, but they keep it out of rote because they're obligated to keep it. This is what we do. In other words, they're very legalistic in the keeping of the law. Okay. But... They have no heart for the law. They have no heart for God. See, they do it just out of routine. And so what you have in verse 43, Jesus says this. See if this sounds familiar. You've heard it said that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Well, no Pharisee ever did that. That you may be on uh, be sons of your Father in heaven. Look at this. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, 
what do you do more than any others? Everybody greets their brethren. Uh, don't even the tax collectors do that? Therefore, guess what you're to do? You are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And Jesus talked about this full commitment of meeting people's needs and regardless of their circumstances. Rub shoulders with people who are poor. Touch them. Hug them. Love them. This is what God does. He loves everybody. So you see this concept here, what it means to be perfect. And Jesus is saying that's the kind of stuff that you need to be doing. Now keep your hand there because we're going to come back in a second. Now go back to the uh, Matthew passage, Matthew 19 passage. And we'll look at that. So Jesus says, well, if you want to be perfect, sell what you have and give it to the poor. And he says this, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Okay? Give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. So here's what's lacking in the man's life. Two things. Number one, he has to give to the poor. That's almsgiving. How much does he have to give to the poor in this case? Give it everything. Give all of it. Now, if you're giving everything away, what do you have? I guess you have nothing. So how are you going to live if you have nothing? What are you going to have to do? Well, you could beg. That's one thing you could do. What else could you do? Oh, you depend on God. That's true. Yeah. And then he says, so that would be fair. What does a child have to do if he wants something to eat? Oh, he has to depend. That's right. Depend on God. He's helpless. He has nothing. What does a child have? Nothing. What does he have? Nothing. He has to depend. You have to become dependent. And then he says, come and follow me. Do you know anybody else that was dependent? How much money did Jesus carry in his pocket every day? Jesus was dependent too. He may be saying, follow my example. Or you know what he may be saying when he says, come and follow me? He may say, come on, let's go. Be the 13th apostle. Come with me on the road. He could be saying that, couldn't he? Which is not sure what he's saying here. But notice what he says. If you do this, you're going to have treasure. And where is that treasure going to be in verse 21? It's going to be in heaven. Now, have we ever seen that phrase before? We have. If you go back again to Matthew 6, go back to Matthew 6 and you'll see that phrase. So Jesus isn't saying something that he hasn't already said. We've gone over passages like this previously. In Matthew 6, we have the Lord's Prayer in there. And then in verse 19, he says this. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and does destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. Because where your treasure is, that's where what? Your heart will be. So here you can see what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a heartfelt religion. Not giving alms because, guess what? Every year at this time, we give it in the office. We give something to the poor. We give to the March of Dimes every year. You know, we, he's not talking about just doing stuff out of obligation. He's talking about a heartfelt desire to, to do what God wants you to do. Be like God. He takes care of people and uh, uh, regardless. Okay? So... 
Jesus says, basically, you know what you need to do? You need to just give it to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. So, it's one thing to possess goods. And we all possess goods. It's another thing if goods possess you. If goods possess you, you're not willing to give things up because they got a hold of you. And uh, you can tell your heart's condition by that issue. Does uh, Do goods possess you or do you possess goods? If goods possess you, guess what? You may have to give everything up and follow Jesus. That may be what he's requiring. See, that's what he's saying. So go back to the Matthew 19 passage, and we'll, I'll show you how all this sort of works out. Okay. So here's what happens in verse 22. I love this verse. Because here's what happens. When the young man heard that saying, give it all up, give it to the poor, follow me. When he heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. Look at this. For he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Or we could have said, he went away sorrowful because the possessions had him. Isn't that right? That's what it means. Uh, how much, let me ask you this, how much do you think he loved these neighbors himself? He said he was lacking something. What do I have to do? Has Jesus just told him? Jesus told him. Now what has he done? Has he argued with Jesus? Does he give a justification why he's going to walk away? Does he bargain with Jesus? Oh, well, how about you know, two-thirds? Guess what he just does? So, okay, that's what it takes. <laughs> that simple. No arguing. Nothing. Uh, let me ask you this. How bad did this guy really want eternal life? Not bad enough. <laughs> you see, we have a concept of what faith is. Like it's just we tip our hat to God. Well, we believe. Yeah, yeah well, what does that mean? Is it faith? Without works? Is it faith plus works? Or is it a faith that works? See, I think that we've really missed the point. In the Luke passage, it said Jesus loved the young man. It says there was something about this guy that, that attracted Jesus to it. He was the kind of guy that he would have loved to have. He would have loved to have him rather than Judas, I think. But Jesus never runs after him. You know what we would have do in modern society if someone came up and said, you know, I'd like to have it. He's a millionaire. I'd like to, to have eternal life. And, well, <laughs> you do? And you're the minister? What's going on in your mind? See all those dollar signs wrapping up? We want this guy in our church, don't we? He can really help us, can he? Millionaire. What's Jesus telling you to do with his money? 
I don't want your money. I want your heart. Give it away. Let me see how serious you really are. He wasn't that serious. He says he wants to be like a child, but to be like a child means you have no status, you have nothing. Or you're dependent upon others. This man lacks faith. You want to know what repentance and faith looks like? Here's what repentance and faith looks like for this man. Here's what repentance and faith looks like for this man. For this man, he has to repent. He has to turn around from the way he's living. <coughs> abandon all of it. And just follow Jesus. That's, what's going to, that's what repentance and faith looks like for this man. What does it look like for you? What's it look like for me? might not be the exact same formula. It's always repentance and faith. What does it look like for this man? What does it require from us? What do we have to do in our own situation to become like little children? Okay? So this leads to a teaching moment. So look at verse 23. Matthew 19, 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, let me tell you something. This is a truism here. Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How hard is it? <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Because what's required of this guy? To be a person of faith. If you have money, you don't need faith. You're independent. You're independently wealthy. So Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How hard is it? Well, that's a good question. Look at verse 24. Again, I say to you, here's how hard it is. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now this is hyperbole. A camel was the largest animal in Palestine. Jesus did. And the eye of a needle is the smallest opening. <laughs> so, uh, this, is a, this is parabolic. This is a, a hyperbole. But he's telling you, well, how hard is it? Let me tell you how hard it is. It's about as hard as a camel getting through the eye of a needle. Now look at the reaction of the apostles in verse 25. When his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. That shocked them. This is not what they were expecting to hear. And look what they said. Who then can be saved? If a rich man can't be saved, who can? Because see, in their eyes, if you're rich, you're blessed. you got God's blessing. That's how they were thinking. Man, if a rich person can't get saved, who in the world can be saved? Who can enter the kingdom of God? Okay? Now look what happens. But Jesus looked at them and he said, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Even a rich person can get saved with God. But with me, it takes a divine element for a person to enter the kingdom of God. For a person to be forgiven, for a person to be saved, there's a divine element there. You can't do it on your own. 
The guy just couldn't have said, you know, one day in his own mind, I'm going to give everything to the poor and I'm going to just sort of do the... He had to hear this call. Just as, in a sense, Israel, when it got saved, when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, who was it that opened the Red Sea? I mean, God opens the Red Sea, doesn't he? Uh, it's a God thing. So Jesus says, you know, God is the one who's going to have to uh, save a person. God, salvation is of the Lord. Now, Peter chirps up at this point. Okay? Now, look what he says in verse 27. Very interesting. I like this. In light of what's just been said and what's happened. Peter answered and said, Look, Jesus, we have left all. There were two steps. Sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow Jesus, right? Now look what Peter said. We followed the two steps. Number one, we left all. Number two, we've followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? We've taken the two steps. What's in it for us? Are we going to have salvation? Look what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said, Assuredly I say unto you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes. Here's what's in it for the person, and in this case the twelve, who give up all, be dependent upon God, follow Jesus, Number one, you will rule with Christ. You'll reign on twelve thrones. And number two, he says in verse 28, you'll judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, the twelve tribes means you will be judging those Jews like the rich young ruler who heard the message and didn't follow. You who followed, you'll be their judges. When is all this going to happen? Number one, look in verse 28. In the regeneration. This is a phrase that uh, a group of philosophers use called the Stoics. They believed that one day the world would be destroyed and it would be made anew. It would be born again. And uh, this is a reference to the renewal of the earth. The age to come. The new heaven and the new earth. The end of time. When the kingdom comes upon the earth, they will rule with him, and they will judge. And then he says, second of all, it will happen when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory. So here is the Lord coming to earth, renewing the earth, ruling over the earth, and at that time, they will rule with him, and they will be the judges over the nation of Israel. Because the twelve apostles, the ones who are obedient, is if you follow me, are the new people of God. They're the new Israel. And then Jesus adds something. He says, and everyone, now that includes you. That includes me. Look, not just the twelve. Everyone who has left houses or brothers and sisters, I would say this would be possessions, family, brothers or sisters, or a father or a mother or a wife, or children or lands, look at this, 
for my sake shall have shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Another phrase which means will enter the kingdom of God. You will be repaid a hundredfold. Who will be repaid a hundredfold? Those who give up everything for Christ's sake. And sometimes, you know, God requires you to give up your family for the sake of Christ. You were reared in another religion. Maybe another very famous religion. Maybe you were reared in the Catholic Church. Maybe you were reared as a Muslim. And guess what it's going to mean to follow Christ? It may mean for you that you give it all up. It may mean that your father takes you out of the will and you lose the land. That's what it may mean. It may mean that you're going to go on the mission field in the name of Christ and you have to leave everything behind. You have nothing. You've joined a faith mission. New Frontiers or one of those missions. and You just leave it all and just trust Christ. He says, if you're willing to do that, he says, you're going to receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. It's going to be multiplied back to you in the kingdom of God. In fact, Mark's gospel says, in this life and in the life to come. Because when you leave your family, guess what? You inherit a new family. A family of believers all around the world, hundredfold. All your needs are met if the church is doing what it's supposed to do, a hundredfold. So guess what he's asking each one of us to do? It's put in that very famous phrase that we all know, count the cost. For the rich young ruler, there was a certain cost, and for each one of us there's a different cost. But it all speaks of repentance, of change, and faith. Now look at this last verse, verse 30. But many who are first, that's those who are first in this world's eyes, will be last. And people like children, the last, they're going to be what? They're going to be first. (laughs) If the kingdom belongs to such as children, then what's required of us is that we trust in God for time and eternity. Not only for our spiritual needs, but our physical needs to be met. Because the opposite is to depend on what you have. And if you're dependent on yourself, then you're not dependent on God. Remember the rich man in Lazarus? The rich man lived sumptuously. And Lazarus, the beggar, was outside the gate. He would have loved just to have the crumbs that dropped off the man's table. Dogs got to him first. That's what it was like in this life. The rich man first. Lazarus, the beggar, last. But in the age to come, Jesus says, who's eating at the table of God and who's excluded? 
the first or last the last or first. And this verse 30 is a swing verse. And by a swing verse, it means it connects what goes before it with what comes afterward. And what comes afterward is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And you know that story. It's where one comes in and works eight hours and gets, let's say, a dollar's pay. Another one comes in and works four hours and gets a dollar's pay. Another one comes in and works one hour and gets a dollar's pay. And someone says, that's not fair. And you'll see how it teaches the same thing at the end of verse 16 in chapter 20, the end of that parable. Notice the lesson at the end of that parable in chapter 20 and verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. You see that? That shows you how verse 30 connects 16 through 29 with 20 verses 1 through 16. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you that uh, that salvation is impossible for us. We can't enter eternal life on our own. We, we can't get into the kingdom of God on our own. We don't have the means. In fact, what we have to do often is just give up, surrender, abandon all. Give it all to you. Oh, Lord, help us to look at a passage like this and then examine our own lives and say, what is it that lacks in our life? What is it that, that hinders us from being surrendered to Christ and being dependent upon Him? Lord, help us to define what repentance and faith looks like for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.